This is episode 31 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest tonight is making his fourth appearance on the show. He's the producer of the basketball show on TSN 1260 and a contributor for the hockeywriters.com, Brian Swain. Brian, how are you doing tonight, man? I'm doing very good. So excited to be back here. We always have such a great time when we get together and uh, talk talk about a little bit of everything. So this is going to be a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, man. It's it's always great having you on the podcast. It's a, it's a great day to record one. It's It was plus 25 in Saskatoon today. I, I heard it was similar weather in Edmonton. Uh, the Oilers are in second place in the North Division. So I don't have much to complain about right now. Yeah, no, it was a beautiful day here, too. And you're right, the Oilers are playing outside of a, a little misstep uh, against the Jets in their last game, or um, against the Flames, I should say, in their last game. Things are things are going just about as perfect as anyone could ask for here these days. Yeah, uh, prior to uh, last night's uh, loss, the Oilers had only dropped two of their previous 16 games in regulation. So uh, an impressive stretch for the Orange and Blue, to say the least. Yeah, that's unbelievable when you put it that way, especially that... Um... You know, I found that I think you look at it in all divisions this year, uh, whether it be uh, the North Division or any of the ones that are based in the States, that with the unique circumstances of the schedule this year and, and everything, it's, it, it seems to be really hard for teams to get put string together lengthy streaks like that. Like everyone kind of has their ups and downs. And, uh, you know, the others for what they've done for really since February, for the most part, has just been incredible. Definitely. And, and although the Maple Leafs still are first place in the division, I believe since the Oilers started three and six, if, if you use that as the cutoff date, Edmonton has been the best team in the North since then. Yeah, I know you're right. They have been. And I think they've also played the most consistent. I mean, you, you know, every time I look at the stand, it seems like, you know, they, they should have that one column where it's the last record in the last 10 games. Everyone else kind of seems to be like five and five, six and four, four and six. The others are the only one that ever seems to be, uh, you know, seven and three or, or whatnot. So I they uh, arguably they have been, if, if not the best, certainly the second best team in in the division in the last three months now. Oh, for sure. And also, this this really is the most exciting time of year to be a hockey fan. Uh, the playoffs are just a few weeks away, and this will be just the third time that the Oilers have qualified for the postseason since making it all the way to Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final in 2006. So I feel like Oilers fans are understandably ready to wrap up the regular season and get the playoffs started. Yeah, and that's some people don't even consider now. Uh, for the record, I do consider last season part of the playoffs, but some people want to put an asterisk next to that and say it's they didn't even make the playoffs last year. So, you know, regardless of how you look at it, it's been it's been a long time, and it's been a no matter what you say, it's been uh, yeah. it's been at least five years now since we've been to the uh, or I guess four years since we've been to the second round, and uh, a lot longer since beyond that. Yeah, it's to me, they made the playoffs last year as well. I know some people, like you said, some people will say that that isn't official playoffs. But here's the thing. They finished in second place of the division. They were three points back of the Vegas Golden Knights for the division title. If not for the COVID situation, the Oilers easily make the playoffs. There was only 11 games left. They weren't going to fall out. If I mean, they might have still taken the division. We don't know. But... Um, it may not go down in the record books as making the playoffs because of the unfortunate loss in the play-in round, but to me, they made it, and uh, this will be just 
the the first time in 20 years, if you can believe it, that the Oilers have qualified for the playoffs in back-to-back seasons. Yeah, when you put it that way, it's kind of uh, really puts things in perspective, doesn't it? But, um, you know, hopefully this is not just uh, two years qualifying in a row. Hopefully this is the, the second of what is many years of making repeat trips to the playoffs. Oh, definitely. I, I think uh, Sportsnet put it out last night on the highlights and I was watching that this is the 15th straight season that the Penguins have made the playoffs. And that's the kind of program you want to build around Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl, where this team is in the playoffs every year and consistently going on deep runs. And hopefully just like the Penguins, there'll be two or three times where they're the last team standing. Yeah, I don't think have, if I remember correctly, they haven't missed the playoffs since Crosby joined the team. Which they, is just, or maybe they, the first year they missed in his rookie campaign. They were okay. one. They were the one of the worst teams in the league again. And then in two thousand six, two thousand seven, they missed again. I no no. They made it that year, and I think lost to Ottawa in the first round. That's right. I remember that now. Yeah, yeah. but then they yeah. then they went to the final the next two years. They lost to the Red Wings in 08 and then beat the Red Wings in 09 for their first cup. So, um, yeah, basically since Crosby's second year in the league, they've been in there every year. And uh, I mean, Malkin has been in the playoffs every single year of his career. So that's uh, that's the kind of, you know, Malkin and Crosby often get compared to McDavid and Dreisaitl so much. And that's the kind of, like I said, team you want to build. Oh, yeah, you know, without question, look at some of the great duels over time. And uh, it's uh, what they've done in Pittsburgh is, is pretty incredible because even before then, I mean, you had the Lemieux and Jag- Jagger era right before that, right? So, I mean, uh, them and uh, and the and Detroit, I know Detroit's come on hard times recently, but I, I think they're going to be a team on the rise here very quickly. And they had a streak of, what was it, about, I think, it was 24 seasons in the playoffs consecutively? Uh... 1991 until 2015 so i think you did nail it 24 now uh is one of those years a lockout year so they didn't there was no season but basically they didn't miss for almost a quarter of a century which is just i mean that is is unbelievable but i you know what i'm gonna might even say the penguins 15 straight might be even more incredible because they've done it in basically the um there there's been at least i guess it would have been at least 30 teams every year since the Penguins have made the yeah. playoffs. So they've been, they've been making it in an era when only 50% of the league make the playoffs. Back in 90, when, when the Red Wings started their streak, that, that was still at the time when 16 out of 21 teams and then 22 and slowly they, they built up. But it was obviously much easier to, to make the playoffs back in the, uh, the early uh, to mid-90s before the, the league really finally grew to the, the numbers it is at today. Absolutely. Plus, and like you said, talking about some of those duos that the Penguins had over time, the Red Wings had some incredible teams as well and and some, uh, you know, teams stacked with Hall of Famers. But when you have uh, a duo like Lemieux and Yager and then later on Crosby and Malkin, those are such incredible generational foundation pieces to build a dynasty with. And uh, we're going to talk about... Uh, the Oilers uh, dynamic duo a little later on in the episode. But first, uh, I think we're going to discuss the legacies of two of the greatest goalies in Oilers history. And Brian, because this is episode 31, we're going to be talking about Grant Fear and Curtis Joseph tonight. So let's start in chronological order with Grant Fear. 
He was selected eighth overall by the Oilers in the 1981 NHL draft and went on to play 10 seasons in Edmonton from 1981 to 1991, capturing five Stanley Cups along the way. He's the franchise's all-time leader in regular season wins, playoff wins, and playoff games played by a goalie. He also ranks second in regular season games played by a goalie. Additionally, Fear holds the franchise record for career assists by a goalie with 37 and the NHL record for assists by a goalie with 14. He won the Vesna Trophy as the league's best goaltender in 1988 and was the first runner-up for the Hart Trophy as most valuable player that same year. Brian, how important was Grant Fear to the Oilers' dynasty during the 1980s and early 90s? Well, I think... The one thing that always stands out for me uh, about fear, um, and you know, you'll hear people that uh, were able to watch watch the team, you know, night after night back back then. Um, he allowed the Oilers to be who they were, uh, that freewheeling team. They could go out and basically, you know, go gung ho, uh, all out onslaught on the opposing goalie and. You know what? What, what <laughs> fear would hold down the fort if he was left there by himself? Great. I mean, the owners had some great defensemen back then too. Of course, you know the likes of a uh, great defensive defenseman, whether it be Kevin Lowe or Charlie Huddy, Lee Fogelin, um, and the list goes on. But uh, he let that team be what what they were, uh, and um, that's part of the reason why I, I think people who didn't watch him play or maybe don't have a full understanding or appreciation of of what he brought to the team look at his numbers or his stats, which which don't jump out of you. I mean, the one that jumps out of you, which is obviously the most important one, is wins. But his goals against average, his save percentage, his, his shutouts, uh, none of those are, are spectacular by any means, but that's just because of the, the type of team he was on. And uh, he he allowed the Oilers to play that way, not only in his in his reliability and his 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 dependability and and being able to come up with the big saves at the, at the right time. He had the personality to, to allow them to do that. Um, you know, he never got upset if they hung him out to dry, um, right? He was, you know, he, he was the ultimate team guy. You never saw him. I, I don't think there's an instance in his career, not just in Edmonton, anywhere where you ever saw him, you know, once cast a blame on his defenseman for anything, for any goal that he ever gave up. I mean, it was including the most infamous goal in, in potentially uh, hockey history in, in Game 7 against the Flames in 1986, but but uh, we won't go there. But that just says it all. I mean, the kind of team player that he was. And, and I think that's... Um, you can appreciate Grant Fear by looking at the stats because, like I say, I mean they're they're not ones that are going to stand up next to the you know today's era where if if you're getting anything giving up more than two fifty uh, goals against average or if you're below a nine ten save percentage you're not even considered a starting caliber player. It was a different time in a unique set of circumstances, and and he was the guy that uh, you know they they don't win five Stanley Cups without him. It's it's that simple. Right. And you like you said, you look at the era he played in when scoring was at an all time high. You can't expect the goaltenders to also be putting up the best numbers in the history of the game either. It's just like you said, he played on a high flying team that was highly focused on scoring. They didn't have a lot of defensive focus at that time. And it's like you said, the main thing is the wins are the stat that he cared about the most. He he didn't care about the goals against average or the save percentage. 
And as he got on later into his career, for anyone who doubted what he was doing in the 80s, he actually had a career resurgence in St. Louis in the mid to late 90s. And I, and that was in an era when scoring was down and when there was more focus on defensive systems. So he was a, a, an important part of that Blues team as well. And I, I know there are some people who think that they could have went on a deeper run uh, had they not run into the Red Wings in the 96 playoffs. But um, Fear is just such a unbelievable player for the sport. And uh, I mean, first and foremost, he, he's just such a fantastic athlete. I mean, Wayne Gretzky himself calls Fear the greatest goalie in NHL history, but he was also selected by the San Diego Padres as a catcher in the MLB draft. And after retiring from the NHL, he came close to getting his Canadian tour card. I, I believe he's still a scratch golfer. So, even though he's best known as a hockey legend, it's pretty impressive that Fuhr had the potential to play three different sports professionally, isn't it? It is really quite remarkable because, you know, what the funny thing about that is, too, is that um, if you were if he was the guy that you just saw, let's say you'd never heard of Grant Fuhr before. You just ran into him in the grocery store or something. You would never look at this guy and say, hey, there's there's an athlete. Right. I mean, he, he's look. I mean, he was not. You know, he was not a um, not a big guy by any means. I think means. he's five nine. Five five nine. He he's not he's not you know like uh, like cut like some super athlete or anything. Uh, he's a pretty average looking guy, and uh, you know that that just uh, that's just an awful lot. Um, I and actually I'm, I'm glad you brought that up about being being drafted by the Padres. I always forget about that. Um, that's pretty cool that he had that. I, I would love to have, uh, you know, we got a chance to see what he could actually do pursuing his golf career. And uh, like you say, he, he did pretty good. He came close to getting his card a couple times. But I, I would really love to see what, what he would have been like. Uh, I don't know if the Edmonton Trappers back in the day when they were a triple-A team ever invited him out just to uh, take <laughs> some batting practice. Because there was there was some really good players that came through here with the uh, some Hall of Famers, actually, that played with the triple-A uh, the Edmonton Trappers when they were affiliates with the, the – uh, the California, I guess back then they would have been the California Angels. Angels now yeah. the Los Angeles Angels, um, and 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 what what he could have done. So, yeah, that's that's pretty cool. I always forget about that. That's one of the that's got to be one of the coolest bit of trivia. Oh, absolutely. He's. I think I've seen a, a picture a while ago where he was in a, a a team softball game where the Oilers. I don't know if they were taking on the Edmonton City Police or something from back in 1984, 85. So having a guy who is drafted uh, in the MLB draft uh, that's got to be a, a pretty big advantage e even though the team is full of professional athletes to have a guy who you know is a, that talented of a baseball player has got to be a big help yeah it probably helped with his catching ability which we saw him use that glove hand to exactly. uh, to great effect so many times and you know one other thing I was thinking about um, back to the this was in the the boys on the bus documentary in 1987 and they they show Grant Fear on the golf course between Game Six and Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Final, and Kevin Lowe, who was the narrator of that documentary, says that Grant Fear played thirty six holes the day before Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Final, which is incredible to believe it. But you you talked earlier about his um, the way how relaxed he was and never got flustered, the way that he could internalize that and just put put the Stanley cup final aside for a second and just focus on playing two full rounds of golf the day before one of the biggest games of his life. It's, it's remarkable, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, that's uh, and I love the fact too. Like you would never hear, I don't think, about guys these days going out and golfing thirty, you know, two rounds before between games six and seven of a Stanley yeah, Cup that's final. Just that crazy. was uh, that was yeah, that was the culture on the Oilers, and that that started with uh, with the general manager slash coach Glenn Sather. He knew. He he didn't over over coach or over manage in that respect. He let his guys he let those guys be who they were, uh, their own unique personalities. And if uh, he knew that if Grant Fear going out and golfing thirty six holes the the night before the or the day before the biggest game of his career would would help him relax, he'd let him do that. And that's um, I think uh, you know I'm getting into a whole other topic now about Glenn Sather, but that was that just sort of shows the, the culture of that team that everyone kind of got to be who they were, and I think that allowed yeah. them to um, to maximize um, each of their you know maximize their their individual potential and show their personality too. I mean, like Glenn Anderson, for example, was another guy who was uh, had had a quite larger than life personality and uh was kind of a little different away from the rink than some of the other guys like all these these players had the freedom to to be who they want who they wanted to be like you said but um it also just shows the confidence i think of that team that grant was able to you know he was so sure that they were going to win the next day that it's not like he had to be staying at home training or so just so focused on the game the next night yeah no exactly and that you know that was his way of focusing um and uh hey the results speak for themselves right we know what happened in that game seven absolutely it, it might be one of the biggest games in oilers history with uh obviously winning 3-1 over the flyers to take the 87 stanley cup and also grant fear was the starting goaltender for team canada later that summer in the 1987 canada cup as well which they won and he was also the the starting goalie, I believe, for the um, uh, I forget what they call them, the NHL All Stars in the Rendezvous '87 earlier that year. Right against um, the Russians, right? Against the Russians. So I mean, he had quite the uh, quite the eventful 1987, that's for sure. <laughs> and if we fast forward about 16 years, he had a very memorable year in 2003 as well. I want to talk to you about that next. Uh, most importantly, that year, he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame, becoming the first black player to ever receive the honor. The Oilers also retired his number 31, and he played for the Oilers alumni in the Megastars game at the first ever Heritage Classic at Commonwealth Stadium. And I remember you telling me the last time you were on the show that you were at Northlands the night they raised Yari Curry's number 17 to the rafters. So were you also there on Fear's Banner Night in 2003? And did you attend the first uh, Heritage Classic? Oh boy, have I got stories. Um, <laughs> no, I was so actually Fear was the first. Well, I shouldn't say that. I was not obviously not there for Alan Hamilton having his uh, jersey retired, but I was there for uh, Gretzky. I was I was blessed to be there for that. Uh, I was there for when Curry had his number retired too, and I also made it to Coffee, who I believe was the fourth one to have his number go up. But Fear was the one of that first four that was the only one that I missed. Yeah, Coffee uh, was 05. Yeah, yeah. So I I made it to uh, to three of the first four. But yeah, I was there for Gretzky, there for Curry. I wasn't there for Fear. I do remember very clearly uh, watching it um, at the time. But uh, as far as the Heritage Classic goes, um, I was working for United Cycle here in Edmonton at the time, and they were the official retailer for the Oilers that oh, year. Wow. And uh, so what they did was half the staff was going to have to go work at the stadium. 
uh, manning the concessions there because they had to open up so many extra uh, concessions with so many people in, and such a demand for merchandise. And and the other half were going to, but it was on a normal Saturday. So, I mean, it was normal store hours. So the other, you know, pretty much everyone was called into work and half of us were going to go work at the, at the stadium. And the other half was, uh, was going to just stay and work normal shifts at the store. And I was pretty new uh, at the time then. Um, I maybe only been there for three or four months. So, I mean, I, the, the uh, work getting to work the game was kind of considered one of the plum gigs. I mean, everybody wanted to be there, right? So oh, I didn't sure. get the chance to go. And, uh, and, you know, initially a little bit disappointed, of course. But then the, the, the day ended up being like minus 25. And uh, and all the poor people that, had, that went there, you know, they're, the guys who were, I mean, it was cold for everybody who was there, of course. Uh, but, of course, at least they had the heaters down at ice level for the guys who were playing and everything. And, uh People who were maybe in the stands, they could go and uh, enter under the concourse and take a break if they wanted to uh, warm up a little bit. Uh, the, the toughest gig that day or the coldest gig might have been the, uh, the United Cycle staff that had to go sell, uh, sell T-shirts and, uh, and hats. Yeah, I, I can only imagine. I was watching it in my living room, uh, which was comfortably warm and uh, just... I was glued to the TV watching these Oilers legends from the eighties that I'd heard so many stories about from my dad and just read about in books and watched highlights on TV and to actually see them play live, even, you know, well past all their playing days, except for Mark Messier, who was still an active player at the time with the New York Rangers. <laughs> Which is just ridiculous yeah. when you think about it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah he, he he had to get special permission from Glenn Sather to participate in that game. And Sather, obviously, uh, who was GM of the Rangers at the time, served as the honorary coach for the Oilers alumni in that game. And then immediately following uh, the Heritage Classic, he had to fly to whichever city they were in to uh, finish his 25th and final season with the Rangers. So yeah, it's, it's unbelievable that, that he was still going long after all these guys had hung up their skates. Uh, I guess someone like Craig Simpson could have still been young enough to be in the NHL had he not retired from injuries as, as well. But I just remember watching that game. Fear makes one incredible glove save. If you go back and watch on YouTube, you can see it. And uh, the commentators said something to the effect of, it looks like he's still got it. Like he hasn't missed a step in the three years since he's been retired. And just um, just so great to see Grant, as well as all the Oilers legends, put on the old orange and blue. Yeah, that was pretty cool because, I mean, at that time, it's it's kind of become almost kind of commonplace that every couple of years over the last decade or so, there's been an occasion for that group to get together. Yeah. Whether it was the 84 Stanley Cup reunion, all the stuff that went on at... Um, at Rexall, uh, when when they closed that down, it's it's always seen that uh, there there's there's been a lot of reunions for one reason or another over the last yeah. several years. But back then, that was like the first time any of them had gotten together since you know since they'd won the Stanley Cups, well over a decade. So it was it was a pretty pretty special occasion. Oh, the other um, of course the uh, the Heritage Classic in Winnipeg is the other time I'm thinking about now, when they which I was at in recent years. Right, that, right. I went to that one and it was a lot warmer. It was in early October. I think it might have been plus five that day. So, I mean, you you still had to have like a, a warm hoodie on and everything, but it wasn't like minus 25 or 30 or whatever it was that afternoon in, in Edmonton in November of 2003. Um, and finally, I just wanted to share a quick story about how great of a person Grant is too. So I had the chance to meet him when I was working at Global Saskatoon in 2014 and Brian, I can say without a doubt, he is the nicest professional athlete I've ever met. So he was on his book tour at the time, 
And I probably spent 20 minutes talking to him that morning before he did his interview on the morning show. Uh, he also signed an 8x10 photo for me. We took a picture together in studio. And after finishing up at Global, he had to do a couple other radio interviews in town. So I went along to film it for uh, our evening news broadcast that night. And after finishing up with, uh, you know, getting all the shots that I needed, um, I, I was talking to Grant and his wife and uh, Grant invited me to come to his book signing that night. But unfortunately, I couldn't make it. But I still told him it was great meeting him and I wanted to thank him for taking the time to talk about the Oilers glory days with me. So then fast forward to the next day, I show up to work and when I when I get through the front doors, there was a signed copy for me waiting at the front desk. And I was just stunned to find out that on his drive to the airport that morning, <clears throat> Grant stopped by the TV station to drop off a copy of his book because I couldn't make it the night before. And, you know, he could have easily forgotten about me 10 seconds after I said goodbye to him the previous day. But the fact that he not only remembered me and my name, but also took the time out of his day to stop by my place of work and drop off the, the book so I could have a copy just showed me what kind of a man he is. And uh, just how great of a person he is. And, and that made me an even bigger Grant Fear fan than I already was. Yeah, I know. I remember, um, I, I think, uh, I know we talked, or you told me, you shared this story with me in the past. I remember when I, I was just uh, floored when I first heard it. I mean, that is one of the um, the, mo the kindest gestures I've heard from uh, 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 a celebrity, I guess, if you will, uh, make. I mean, just, um, it's... Uh, I, I can't imagine what your reaction must have been like when you oh, got there and, was... and saw that. Like, did you believe the, what, what were you, especially like yourself already? <laughs> this is someone that's already like, a, you know, almost like a hero to you, right? And then yeah. for that to happen. Well, I mean, we had spent basically, I don't know, four hours together that morning as I followed him around. And, you know, I, I had had the chance to talk to Grant when he was doing his interview. I was filming it when I wasn't getting the shots. I came out of the studio. I was chatting with his wife <clears throat> and we just we we started talking about everything he was telling me about when he got drafted by the by the Padres. And I think he even attended uh, spring training with them one year. So it's just there were all these different conversations we were having and just he never seemed to get like tired of me. I, I didn't want to pester him too much with questions about the glory days, but he never got tired of answering the questions. He'd always tell you everything. And it didn't look like it was, it was bothering him. Like he really, it seemed like he enjoyed talking about it. And then just to find out that he was, you know, um, that he, that he was disappointed. I couldn't make it to his book signing. He wanted to make sure I got a, a copy of it. I just, I was like, man, this guy is just, you know, he just keeps getting better and better. Yeah, uh, you know it's and it's cool too when people when your heroes actually live up to uh, you. They're you know you you put put these guys on such a pedestal and we really don't know what they're like in their everyday lives. So when I mean they live up to, if not in that case, probably even exceed everything that you would imagine about how uh, or what what they are as people is is just incredible. And I mean I think uh, any anyone who has stories of Grant Fear has had a chance to meet him off the ice or know him from off the ice. They 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 right down to the last person they they reflect exactly what you said i mean this is just the kind of uh, person he is and uh yeah. uh hall of fame player hall of fame person 
I couldn't have said it better. All right, let's move on to Joseph now. So Curtis Joseph was traded to Edmonton by the St. Louis Blues on August 4th, 1995, along with the rights to Mike Greer for their previously acquired first round picks in 1996 and 1997. Brian, what was your immediate reaction when you heard about the trade that summer? Hmm. That's a good question. What was my immediate reaction? I think it was, uh, I think it was something along the lines of, but but don't we have Bill Ranford? <laughs> um, I think that was really what it was, actually, if I can remember correctly. Like it just didn't, it didn't make a lot of sense. Um, the Oilers were obviously this was, they were they were in the midst of uh, their first early dark period, I guess, if you will. That that was they missed the playoffs for three straight seasons in, um, and. Uh, you know, it was they were still away from getting back and getting the pieces in place to, to finally get back to the playoffs. And uh, yeah, I just remember thinking at the time. I mean, obviously, as the plan played over over time, we saw what the what the greater vision was by for Glenn Sather, and uh, and it was it was a perfect move. But yeah, at the time, my kind of reaction was just like, we've got Ranford. Of all the things we need to do to to improve this team, I I I never thought of starting in goal, but. Um, and at that point in time, too, I mean, Bill Ranford was kind of like he was the face of the team then. Uh, so um, and for kids like myself, we grew up in, about him or grew up with him as kind of the, the star for the Oilers. He, he kind of uh, was unassailable almost. So the fact that uh, he would need to be replaced probably didn't um, didn't occur to us. But, uh, yeah, it was it turned out to be. Um, the the greater vision that Glenn Saylor had that when he put the wheels in motion, making that move uh, turned out to be a stroke of brilliance. Definitely. And I mean, like you alluded to Cujo's first year in Edmonton, the Oilers weren't a very good team. They, they missed the playoffs by 10 points in 1995, 96. However, they returned to the postseason the following year where they faced the heavily favored Dallas stars in the opening round and despite finishing 23 points back of the Stars that season, the Oilers pulled off an incredible upset, defeating Dallas in seven games. Brian, how much fun was that series just to watch? And how important was Joseph to the Oilers winning that series in 1997? Oh, well, for, for that question, I mean, uh, to answer it simply, they don't win, win it without him. And, uh, I mean, they don't, they don't even come close. He, he had... I mean, he got the shutout in game five in double overtime. Um, well, they had three overtime wins in that series, and he made countless clutch saves in each instance. Uh, so, you know, uh, I, I can't, I couldn't really even begin to quantify what it meant for, for him or what his presence and what he did for that team did to put them through and, and give them the opportunity to win that series. But uh, other than just to say that, you know, they, they don't even come close without him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that series was, was a lot of fun and I really appreciated it a lot. Uh, I was still a kid in, in the latter stages of the, or, oh, I mean, I was still a kid even in 97, really, to be honest. But when I was growing up, all I knew was the others making the playoffs every year. And, and, you know, pretty much once they got there too, if they weren't winning the Stanley cup, they were going on a pretty deep run. And then when they missed it at 93, it was kind of like a rude awakening. And this is what this is what most everyone else, other fan bases have to go through is that you have your hard, your, your tough years every now and again. And then, of course, they missed in 94 and 95 and 96. When they finally got back in 97, you, it, it had been so long. 
that you had you've you had that was the first time I think that Edmonton maybe really truly I'm not going to say that fans here didn't appreciate what they had before, but sometimes you have to lose something and get it back before you know what you truly have and and to be able to experience and that's why I think in ninety seven that's when you started seeing a more it was a probably a create a crazier atmosphere in a more enthusiastic atmosphere, just more a different kind of energy in those games, like things like people singing along to the national anthem and stuff like that. I mean, it was just electric in those, in those arenas when the team made it back to the playoffs in the late nineties. And I think that's because a lot of any, a lot of, a large part of that is anyone that could remember had, you know, they loved and lost and they got it back again. And now they were going to squeeze every last moment they could of it because these teams weren't going on long playoff runs. You might only right. have two home playoff games in, in a, you know, in, in, for example, 99 and 2000. They only had two play, home playoff games those years. You were going to embrace that and get every last bit of joy you could out of it. And, uh, and that's why it was so much fun to me is because I appreciated it on a level that I didn't when I was younger. Every victory meant so much. Um, every, you know, even just every game. It, it was just, just the atmosphere in the city. It's, uh, that's the best way I can explain yeah. it. You loved, you lost, you got it yeah. back, and you have a greater appreciation for it now. That is a really good way to look at it. And maybe I hadn't thought of it like that before because it's like you said, up until 1992, the Oilers had never missed the playoffs their first 13 seasons in the league. And even after winning the cup in 1990, their fifth cup in seven years, they still made it to the 91 and 92 conference finals. Because I was so young at the time and not able to appreciate it, and you were actually living in the city and surrounded by it, do you think it's fair to say that even though the Oilers went out in the second round in 97, that that playoff run might have been more memorable to Oilers fans than either of the 91 or 92 conference final appearances? I think in many ways, yes. Um, a large part of that, though, is because, uh, I mean, just so many of the moments that define that 97 series. I mean, the, the Marchant goal, um, uh, the uh, the comeback at home in Game 3, coming back from down 3 nothing in the final five minutes, then winning in overtime. Uh, but, but yeah, I, th- I think so. I think there was, there was a new appreciation. It was, it had gotten to the point maybe where in 91, 92, it was, it was almost, um, and I'm just speaking from the perspective of a kid here, but I, you, I, you get the sense it was maybe just kind of take it for granted that because the others weren't even that, that good, those regular seasons, I think they finished third both years in the division. I mean, they shouldn't they, have even, they were, they were not the favorites to win in the first round, but the playoff experience just, was still there, right? They just, exactly. they, they knew how to win when they got to the dance. Exactly, exactly. And there were some really, really good teams that they knocked off that never really got to contend for a title. I mean, I mean, the the Flames that they knocked off in, in seven games in 91, I think, finished like 20 yeah. some points ahead of them. Uh, they knocked off the, the but they still had, Kings. I mean, they still had uh, SCA, right? And they had Anderson then in 92. They didn't have fear. They didn't have Anderson. They didn't have Messier like this. This team was still it had some remaining parts from their dynasty, but all the key cogs, I think, were, were pretty much gone by then. Yeah, the last one, I mean, Lowe would have been the last one left from the... He was still there in 92, yeah. I think Huddy was gone the previous year. 
And as far as other guys that have been around for a number of cups, I mean, Craig Simpson had won a couple. Craig McTavish had won three, I want to say. Kelly Booker had won yep. three. But those are more of the, uh, the heart and soul guys, not like the – not well. I shouldn't say that. Not the Messier and Gretzky, of course, were heart and souls, but those were kind of the gritty guys, right? They were not the ones that were going to go out and, and, right. and give you, uh, you know, your your thirty point, uh, thirty goal seasons. So it was a different dynamic then, and, and it eventually caught up with them in '93, and then it really all like when it went bad, it went bad really bad really quickly. Oh, definitely. And just keeping the focus on. Uh, uh, Joseph Nami, I feel like we could go down a whole nother tangent just talking about 90s Oilers hockey. But um, although the Oilers were eliminated by the defending Stanley Cup champion Colorado Avalanche in the second round in 97, they earned a rematch against them in the playoffs in 1998. And just like the previous spring, the Oilers upset a powerhouse in the first round as they knocked off the Avalanche in seven games. Brian, as, as good as Joseph was in the 1997 playoffs, is it fair to say that he was even better in 1998? Yeah, so I'm going to make a confession now. So in 1998, after game four, when the Oilers had lost a game four against Colorado, the Oilers had lost for a third straight game. Uh, they'd won game one of that series. They lost, Then they lost the next three and, and fell behind 3-1. And I think they'd given up five goals in at least two, if not all three of those losses. And I, at the time, actually wanted to start Bob Essensa in game five. Oh, wow. Like, I was like, I was just like, Cujo just didn't seem to have it to me. There was, um, and at that point in time, everyone knew that Curtis Joseph was not re-signing at the end of that season, right? Like, uh, it was, it, Glenn say there, we knew that there was going to be suitors with, more attractive, maybe championship opportunities with more money. Uh, we knew his the opportunity to play for his hometown team, the lease, which is where he ultimately went, was going to be there. Everyone knew that Cujo was not coming back. And it was just kind of like, it, it, it was just kind of like, it seemed like it was just all coming, kind of coming to a, a, an unhappy end here. He just didn't seem to have it in that series. And, and I actually thought, and I don't know if it was just me and amongst my friends uh, talking about this, but I do remember some chatter. It could have just been at our lunch table <laughs> talking about as I don't know if it was widespread across the city chatter about people wanting to replace S- or bring in Essence for game five. But uh, goalie Bob, goalie Bob Essence, actually, I mean, he was never had any deep playoff runs, but he was pretty experienced. He was he was a decent goalie and had a lot of uh, playoff games under his belt. And it was just kind of like everything had gone so wrong for the orders. They were falling down three, one after they'd taken the one, nothing lead. It was just like, right. You know, let's just see what happens here. Uh, and then, and then, uh, Curtis Joseph, I think shuts out the abs for the final, I want to say, is it seven or eight periods? I think it's the final eight periods of that series. Yeah. Where they didn't get a goal. I've heard that too. I couldn't remember if it was seven or eight, but just unbelievable that he was able to, Stonewall, a team with that much firepower. I mean, we're talking Joe Sackick and Peter Forsberg in their absolute prime. Just it's and and two years removed from their Stanley Cup victory. Just remarkable that he was able to once again lead the Oilers to an improbable victory over a, a Stanley Cup contender. Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, that is one of the greatest goaltending, if not. If you just, you know, a string of, say, just three or four games in uh, greatest goaltending performances, maybe maybe the greatest three consecutive games that any Oilers goalie has, has ever played. 
um, just to turn it around like he did too. Because like I say, I mean, they were not. Uh, he was not doing playing well. The team was certainly not playing well in the, in the three previous games. And I think they even got down like one nothing, or I think they got down one nothing, maybe even two nothing, in that uh, in that fifth game. And and that was the last time that the Avs would score in that series. They had the lead in game five at home, up three one, like forty minutes away from knocking off an Oilers team that they had already beaten four one the previous year. That they'd finished about you know I don't know how many I think six spots ahead of in the standings, seven spots ahead of in the standings. Like there was just no reason to think that this would turn around at no. all. And, uh, and they never scored on Curtis Jones the rest of the way. And like, you just rattle off the yeah. high scoring players. I have on the team. I mean, it's, it's when you think about it, it's, it's like movie script stuff. Yeah. when You look back on it. And I think they cemented it with a four, nothing win in Colorado, the final game. So unlike the previous year where Todd Marchant scores this overtime winner in Dallas, that game was in the bag early on. Yeah, yeah, it was. And I do remember that game pretty clearly, too. It was just like the Oilers got the big first goal, or scored the first goal, obviously, uh, which which was big. You know, Did Garen have a breakaway goal in that game? I'm trying to remember. Yes, yes, yes. I, I do remember that, too. I could be mixing it up with something else, but I remember that, too, and I think that was the game. And, uh, yeah, they just got the one goal, and then they just added another and another. And uh, suddenly it's getting late in the game, and they got a 4 nothing lead. It's like, this is, this is happening. Um, <laughs> and if you go back and watch that game, like, I, I remember how just how stunned, and you can imagine what, what, what it was like for the Avalanche players and their fans. Uh, to, <laughs> like, it was just, it was impossible for people to, to wrap their head around. And, uh and the Oilers did, of course, they, they would get knocked off in the next round, 4-1 by the Stars, but Cujo was lights out in that series, too. The Oilers just couldn't score in that series. They, they could not get a puck pass Belfort to save their lives. Um, and uh, Cujo, was, he, he really, for the last uh, nine or eight games, I guess, of, of that playoff year, his final eight games as an Oiler, uh, he was just otherworldly. Yeah, just... You have to give him all the credit. I think it's fair to say he was the the MVP of both those uh, first-round upsets. And I believe you've told me that Cujo is your favorite Oilers goalie of all time, uh, despite not playing very long in the City of Champions. Uh, Brian, did he sort of cement his spot as your favorite netminder with those two stellar performances in the late 90s? I think so. I think so. I just, I, I hold those teams so so dear uh, to my heart as a, as a, as a fan growing up, because those are the ones that um, that's kind of the intersection of when I was at, when I was most a fan, most in love with the team and have my clearest memories of it. Okay. Uh, so, so those teams are just so very special to me. And, and he was, he was the guy, what, you know what though, what I really loved about Cujo, what made me love him so much is, is the guy he was away from the rink. Um, I don't know if people remember it here, if, a lot has been made of it over the years, but he did so many great things in the community. He had a really cool initiative called uh, Cujo's Cloud Nine for Sick Kids, where he, he actually, I believe he got a box every season he was here. And he did it even even in his first seasons, like when he came partway through in 96. He hadn't even played a game for the Oilers, and he started doing this. Uh, he, he got a box there and called it Cujo's Cloud Nine, and it was for kids. Uh, for I believe for for sick kids who could come and watch a game there every game in the regular season and of course the playoffs and I mean just like gestures like that like that's what really made me fall in love is is the kind of guy I was was as a as a person and and of course as a player he was um 
you know, he, he was something else altogether too. So it, it was the whole, really the whole package that just made me come to admire him. And I think that's a, a great way to just wrap up how, you know, I kind of shared what a great person Grant is off the ice and you shared what a great uh, person uh, Curtis was off the ice to, to know that these guys were not only two of the, the best goalies in, in franchise history, but they were also great people. It's just, uh, those are the stories that, that you love to hear and, and makes it easy to cheer for the guys. Yeah, yeah, I- exactly. And, you know, I've, I've always been, I've always said that the fan, the teams I cheer for, I'd rather they, I'd rather they be good guys who lose than bad, than bad guys who win. And I know that's probably not the right attitude if you want to build a championship. I mean, <laughs> ultimately, you want to have good guys who win, right? Yeah. But but I always but you know what I I'll always cheer for a guy who's who's a decent person uh, uh, first, and and that's what those guys are, and that's you know part of what made me uh, fall in love with with them as players and and as a team. For sure. All right, let's jump ahead to the here and now, and we have to start by talking about Oilers captain number ninety-seven, Connor McDavid. Statistically, McDavid is having the most dominant offensive season of any NHL player since Mario Lemieux in 1995-96, which if you can believe was a year before McDavid was even born. He's tallied an incredible 84 points in just 48 games this season and has a 17-point lead in the NHL scoring race, so McDavid will easily claim his third Art Ross trophy in a couple weeks. And by doing so, McDavid will join Gordie Howe and Wayne Gretzky as the only players in NHL history to win three scoring titles by age 24. And while that's a huge accomplishment, McDavid has a chance to make even more history by reaching 100 points in just 56 games this season. Brian, I have two questions for you. Do you think McDavid will score 16 points in the final eight games this season and reach the century mark? And Will this be the best season of his career, or does he still have another level to reach? I do think he will get 16 in the final eight games. Uh, I think the fact that the Oilers are playing five games against the poor Canucks, who who are just, uh, they're in rough shape right now. Um, obviously, that, that team, I mean, on all seriousness, no, but that, that team has been through an awful lot. Oh, and their and, schedule uh, is so compact, too, coming up. Yeah. And if, if they're out of the playoff race, it could get ugly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not only have they been through a lot health-wise, physically, and and the challenges that have come with that mentally as well. Now you're like you say they've they've got this really difficult schedule. Um, I often wonder for teams right now that are really out of the playoff race, uh, it's got to be tough to get motivated to play when you're not. You know, at least one thing when even in a normal season when you're like even if you're 40 points out of the playoffs at the start of April. Uh, at least you got, you know, 18,000 people you can skate out in front of that are trying to will you on to victory. And that's got to do something for you to jack you up, uh, even to some degree, no matter how, how tough it of a season it's been. These guys don't have that. And, uh, you know, so I really do wonder what the Canucks are going to look like in these five games they play against the Oilers. So, I mean, I think I think that's part of it. I think the Oilers are probably going to feast on the Canucks in those games. And, and uh, Connor will be a large part of that. So. I do think uh, he's going to get 16-8. The other thing, too, is I just can't see. We know he's going to get really close. And I just can't see him getting, like, I've always, I've been saying that he's either going to miss by, like, at least five or six points, or he's going to make it. Uh, and, I just can't and get 103 or something. Like, 
Yeah, I can't see like <laughs> like that like that final game where like with one period to go and him needing two points, or if there's like one game or two games to go and he needs five points. I can't see him figuring out. Just like that's what the great ones do, right? They, well, they have this 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 uh, intangible quality that uh, that that none of us can really, none of us mere mortals can begin to comprehend. <laughs> to just do something in the occasion, and we saw Gretzky do it so many times. Like you know the, uh, it's like that fiftieth goal the 39th game into an empty net. I mean, it's just like guys, guys like that just somehow find themselves in the right place at the right time to make the magic happen. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen here with, with McDavid. And really Connor's already done it once in his career. If we go back four years ago to April, 2017, McDavid needed 25 points in the final 14 games of the season to reach a hundred. And coming into that game, he had 98 points, the final game of the season, which interestingly enough was also against Vancouver. He got an assist early on, I want to say, on a Drake Kajula goal. And going into the third period, the final period of the regular season, he had 99 points and he ended up getting an assist on Dreisaitl's goal, I think. And that's what got him to 100. So it's like you just said, and, and he was only 20 at that time. So he willed himself to get to a hundred and needed an incredible finish. And he's on pace for that again. Um, and the second part of that question, I just wanted to touch on, I mean, this isn't the best indication because he's not playing a full 82 game season, but the points per game average he's at is far and away the best of his career and the best of any player in the last quarter century. Um, what, what do you think the, the ceiling that he can reach is like in the next year or two, could he get 130 points, 140 points? What do you think? Yeah, I think the ceiling is higher. I certainly don't think we've hit it yet. I mean, uh, just I, I've learned to never put a cap on what this guy can do because as far as like the 100 points season, uh, this season goes, it was kind of something that we were kind of like having fun with back in January. It's like, ah, yeah, it'd be fun if he did it. And he was on pace for it then. And then he was still on pace for it in February. And it was like, okay, well, we're about 20 games in. But to do this for 56 games, there's no yeah. way. So who am I to say that he could not do it over an 82-game season? And and why not even higher? I mean, I think I think a lot of it is just going to be he could we he could I'm not going to go down the whole rabbit hole of you know the way games are officiated right now. Um, and I know you've talked about that a lot in, in previous podcasts anyway, but oh yeah, <laughs> the, the style, he, you know, he's still got, he, he's still got many good years left in this league and there's, there's a chance for the NHL to make adjustments to the way the game is called. We've seen them right. make groundbreaking, you know, like in the, the 2005, six season, when they came back from the lockout, they actually made a commitment to change the way the game was officiated and didn't last forever, unfortunately, but it did for a few years. And, and it really depends on how the game is called and how it's played and, and really what, how many goals per game we're looking at an average NHL game. Like if we can get back to a place where the average team is scoring three goals a game, you know, let's say there's a uh, theoretically seven, eight points on the table for, for each, for within each team every night, um, then why couldn't he score over 150? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where the NHL wants to go. And I don't want to spend too much time on the refs because it's just so frustrating. But honestly, if uh, if the officials called even half of the fouls that McDavid takes on a nightly basis, the Oilers would get five power plays a game easy. And if they called everything, the Oilers would get eight power plays a game. So it's just... 
it's and, and if they're getting those power plays, <laughs> he's getting points on them. Right, and even if they score on two or three out of those uh, those eight power plays, which they which they deserve, but they don't ever get. Now we're talking about you know the the potential for a 150 point season happening. I'm not saying that it still couldn't. I've been thinking for a while that next season he'll finally break 130 points and be the first one since the 90s to do it. But the way he's played this year, I'm starting to think that 140 is where he's going to be at age 25. And I also think next year will be his first 50 goal season. So um, it's a very, very early prediction considering this season isn't even over yet. But I'm saying uh, 50 goals and 140 points for Connor next season. And just sticking with this season, though, no one has ever won the Hart Trophy as most valuable player unanimously before. Do you think McDavid should receive 100% of the first place votes this year? Is that right? I didn't know that. That's crazy. Gretzky never won it unanimously? Not wow. receiving not receiving every possible first place vote. The CBC had an article out it, about it last summer. So uh, apparently the closest to ever do it was actually Mario Lemieux in, I think, 92-93. Right. Wow. So, but Who, uh, normally the, the, there were a lot of high-scoring players back in the... Uh, there was probably... Not that I'm going to endorse anything, but if there was an argument to be made, I guess you could make if against against voting for Gretzky as MVP, you could say that he's surrounded by you know five other Hall of Famers or or this or that, whatever. So, I guess maybe I shouldn't be that surprised that he didn't get the uh, unanimous vote. But I mean, boy, if he couldn't get it, <laughs> I'm is... not sure. If, like like if there's one guy that was going to get it in all of sports in the history of mankind, you yeah, think Gretzky would have been the one to do it. So I mean. Uh, no, I, I, I don't think he's going to get it. We've already seen there was um, I don't know how, how much how indicative this is of it, but there was that. Uh, what was that poll earlier this year where Patrick Kane was? Yes, the writers on NHL, all the writers on NHL dot com voted. Right. So if that's just if that's indicative of the way people were thinking, and obviously I think things have changed a little bit since since then. I mean, Kane's yeah. still having a fantastic year, but McDavid has taken off uh, in a different stratosphere. But if that's the way people were thinking, I think that's pretty indicative of the fact of how they're going to vote. And there's no way that uh, that he's going to get uh, get it unanimously. And and maybe he shouldn't because if Gretzky couldn't, I don't know if anyone deserves it. Well, I mean, this when Gretzky played, it was also at a time when votes were anonymous. And now all the votes are made public. So everyone's oh, name that's is, a great point. That everyone's is a name point. is attached, right? So I wonder if there there might have been an East Coast writer who saw Gretzky a couple times a year. And, you know, there was the whole New Jersey incident in 83 when he called them a Mickey yeah. Mouse organization. There could have easily been a New York area writer who had a grudge against him or from the series against the Islanders where they took them, uh, took away five straight cups potentially from the Isles and, you know, didn't want to give Gretzky that first place vote. I wonder now with it all being made public, if there might even be a certain amount of embarrassment on the writer to not have McDavid as their number one vote, almost like it, it, it just looks bad on them to do not have him. Like, how can you not say the season Connor McDavid is having is better than every other player in the league? I wouldn't be surprised if there's an Eastern writer from Toronto who votes for Austin Matthews. And I mean, he's leading the league in goals. He's what I think eight ahead of Connor right now. So there's, you know, he's going to win the rocket Richard trophy, but is he having a better season than McDavid when he's 
more than 20 points behind him? I don't think so. No, I mean, I think, you know, uh, and, and I don't want to turn this into a McDavid versus Matthews thing, because I think they're both right. in their own right absolutely remarkable players that uh, I just want to appreciate both, as opposed to making it more about one or the other. That said, if I forgot to vote, it, Connor McDavid is your runaway MVP uh, this this year. But, um, yeah, no, he's, I, I don't, I don't ever see him winning it, uh, winning it by a unanimous vote. Um and uh, you know what? For whatever reason it is that the people have, I think I think some writers are just you're you're naturally biased to the guys in your own market too. Um, I was really baffled when I saw the what 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 Kane had uh, in in that poll. Though. That was just that blew my mind. And again, like Kane is having a remarkable year, uh, especially yeah. for a guy his age. But I mean. Um, you know, who knows what makes people vote the way they, they do. Uh, of course. But, and uh, yeah, yeah. You know, That's unbelievable, though, that Gretzky never got it. I no, he know never got ever voted. <laughs> well, I think most years there's something like 250 voters usually. This year, I think the NHL has cut it down to just 100. I saw on Twitter recently. So it, it's not going to be as big of a, a pool voting either. But you know, I guess yeah. when you put it that way too, like to get to get two fifty out of two fifty is pretty hard, right? Like all you need is 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 one one person out of two fifty just for whatever reason that's feeling salty that one day and doesn't want to vote that way. You could understand how, or you could see very easily see how that would happen. I so mean, maybe if there was a year to do it when the votes are only down to a hundred, uh, th- this might be the time that it happens. Yeah, well, there had to be a couple beat writers in Pittsburgh who voted for. Lemieux in the mid 80s when when Gretzky you know so there there are circumstances like that but yeah I I don't necessarily think he'll get 100% of the votes but you'd you'd think that at least 90 out of 100 wouldn't you I I would think so is that is that stretching it too far even well I mean how many uh I mean honestly who else is even really like I'm trying to think who else. Okay, McKinnon. Really McKinnon has like, McKinnon really come probably, up lately, but yeah. he's not. He's not on McDavid's level. Austin Matthews is like fifth or sixth, I think, in league scoring right now. But he's leading the league in goals. He's probably. He might finish second in heart voting. I I, I, I could think, say that. I think it's going to be, and I think part of the reason we maybe saw this too with that poll that's been referencing here is it's going to be a really fractured vote this year because. I think people are, or, or writers are just going to want to keep their vote within the division they cover uh, yeah. just because they haven't had a chance to compare. Um, like it is going to be a really interesting award season this year because how do you measure? I mean, McDavid, for one thing, is he is the slam dunk MVP. But let's say uh, Norris Trophy, I think, is a really fascinating race. Vezina is going to be a fascinating race. Like how do you how, how do you quantify what somebody does in one division versus another? Um, you know, having a having a 250 goals against average in the North might be equivalent to having a, a 210 in another division, right? Or, or vice versa. Uh, so it's going to be really fascinating. But, but getting back to my point, I think the voting is going to be really fractured this year just because a lot. Of, not only have we not seen the teams play each other, Right. Uh, um, the media who's covering them. And I mean, I think, I don't know about you, I, I'm as guilty of this too. I've watched very, very few games outside the North Division this year. Yeah, um, that's that's where like I would not is. feel comfortable voting for anyone outside of the North Division just because I haven't seen enough of them. No, that's... So it, it's going to be a fractured vote, I think. That's a good point. But I, I think if there's ever one that's as cut and try, I mean, you could you could argue Vasilevsky for the, the, the Vesna is a pretty 
uh, straightforward vote as well. But I think that McDavid taking home the heart where he's like, like I said, he's 17 points ahead of the highest, the next highest scoring player in the league, who's also his teammate. And then he's about 20 points ahead of, or more than that. Uh, McKinnon's in third. I think he, McKinnon has 64. So yeah, yeah, about 20 points, almost exactly ahead of, uh, McKinnon for for third right now so it's it's pretty it's pretty much his as far as I'm concerned and he would also I think only be the fifth player in NHL history to win multiple heart trophies by age 24 he should already have two unfortunately the Oilers didn't make the playoffs in 2018 so even though he won the Ted Lindsay award the players still recognized him as the best player in the league he didn't end up uh, getting the heart trophy from the writers uh, and, okay. and to me and and all the, all the last thought of their last point on this is just and i'll say this too as, as someone who has worked uh spent a lot of time working in media i the, the vote that matters is the players i think uh we don't know what we like to think we know what we're talking about we can't we don't have the appreciation of the understanding of what it takes to be the best player in the league that the guys who are actually in there in the in the middle of the grind day in and day out do so i actually to me that's that one probably might the mean more that would mean the most exactly yeah yeah all right let's move on now to the other member of edmonton's dynamic duo leon dreisaitl who is currently second in nhl scoring with 67 points in only 48 games. So he's basically a lock to finish top five in league scoring for the third straight year. But because McDavid is having a season for the ages, I don't think Dreisaitl is getting as much recognition for the tremendous year he's had so far. Brian, what can you say about the season he's having? Well, he's second in the league in scoring. So, yeah, uh, yeah I mean, that's, I mean, that says it all right there, right? I mean, it's just, he happens to be, uh, and, and I, I would like to point out too, for anyone who says that he, the reason he gets so much of his points is because he, he plays with McDavid. Well, you know, those of us who watch the team know that they don't play together. I mean, obviously on the power play, but they haven't spent a lot of time together this year on, on the same line. He, he is quite capable. He could be putting up very close to these numbers if Connor McDavid was not on the team, I think. Uh, the one thing that might, the one thing that maybe where he is helped is the fact that uh, defense cannot focus, or the, the the top pairing on the other team cannot focus on one or the other. And I think when they're on different lines, and I think they benefit, they benefit from each other that way. But I, I, yeah, he's 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 being cool. overshadowed by the greatest player in the game today, and um, I think. Uh, he he would still be putting up really really impressive numbers if Connor McDavid was was not on this team. So it's interesting. I mean, we're talking about who some of the other MVP candidates would be this year. I think I think Drysaitel almost has as good a case as anybody to be number two in the voting. Yeah, but it seems like you never hear about him. Like I wouldn't even be surprised if Leon didn't finish top five in heart voting just because he's on the same team as Connor McDavid. Yeah, he won't. He won't. Um, it, I mean, just off the top of my head, I could see it being something like McDavid one, Matthews two, McKinnon three, Patrick Kane four, and then you know throw in whoever you want for number five. Panarin has really you know come on strong with the Rangers lately. I just, but I just don't think Drysaddle is going to end up uh, top five in voting. And and the, you know what? For that too is what makes me so happy that he got the recognition he did last year. Um, for you know all the awards that he won last year was his opportunity to and and he's continued to prove everything that we already knew about him over the years here that he is that good mcdavid or no mcdavid but last year i think he showed everybody and, and got the direction he deserved as probably the second best player in the world right now uh 
if not number two, definitely, you know, right, right up there. Um, He's in yeah. that, that group with Matthews and McKinnon who are all kind of yeah. fighting for the second spot. McDavid is on another tier that, you know, none of these guys are on, but that there's these other super elite players who are all kind of fighting for that second spot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I'm so glad he got that recognition last year. And I think maybe, so maybe really made people stop and take a minute and, and just recognize and understand that this guy in his own right is on a level of greatness. And that's something that um, back in the day with the Oilers of like of the eighties, uh, Messier ultimately won an MVP when um, after Eski got traded, but like Yuri Curry probably never. Yuri Curry, I, I still don't think is appreciated on the level that he is because he was always kind of seen as like the sidekick, just like Drysaitel is mainly seen as the sidekick. Like Yuri Curry never had a season where he won MVP. Um, uh, if he hadn't been playing with Gretzky, could he have been capable of doing that? Maybe. I don't know. We'll, we'll never know. But I also think that just speaks to how incredible um, what, what, how incredible a player uh, Dreisaitl is, is that playing alongside Mick David, when both are in their prime on the same team, there was a year that people looked and said, this is the guy. This is the guy. Yep. Like, that is pretty unbelievable. So... Um, that's, that's to me, that's like the statement about the Leon Dreisaitl right there. You don't need to say anything more. Yeah. I mean, he hit, he was at a hundred points by February last year. I mean, that's it's ridiculous. just, it, like, it's that's almost as incredible. Davis doing this year. Yeah. I mean, to, uh, to outshine the, the greatest hockey player on planet earth, even if, if just for one year, just, I'm, I'm so happy he got that. He became the 10th European born player to ever win the the Hart Trophy, or sorry, the Art Ross Trophy. And um, just recently this week, I should also mention, he passed Marco Sturm to become the highest scoring German born player in NHL history. And he's only 25 years old. So the best is still to come from him. Uh, and you were kind of talking about Messier and Curry there and their impact and significance with the organization. And that sort of leads me into my final question for you tonight, Brian. And this is probably the hardest one of the podcast. But we all know McDavid and Dreisaitl have had tons of individual success during their time in Edmonton, more than we could even list in, in an hour. But they have experienced far less team success. However, I think we've seen over the past two seasons that the Oilers are headed in the right direction and will eventually be contending for Stanley Cups in the coming years. But if we had to look at where they stand among the Oilers all-time greats right now, where would you rank McDavid and Dreisaitl? That's a tough one. I know you gave me a bit of a heads up that you'd be asking me this. <laughs> I, when I do these kind of like, one of the great conversations, great discussions, and there was, a, uh, I think TSN did it last year where they were talking like the greatest players for every franchise. Um, I put a lot of weight in longevity and, and the amount of time you, you spend with a team. Like, I think that's important to your impact on a franchise is how long you're there. Um, as opposed to just having like, you know, a, a few really incredible seasons. Um, to me, it's just as valuable for someone that's been there for like a decade or more. So yeah. for me to even like for uh, with McDavid now in his sixth season, and uh, it's hard to believe it's already six. You know, in, in fairness, seven. though, like at seven, Paul Coffey is widely considered a top five Oiler of all time, and he right. only played seven years in Edmonton. So, you know, there are Gretzky only played nine, Messier played 12. Um, you know, the longest are Kevin Lowe and Ryan Smith, who each played 15. But um, it's, I, I think that it's fair to say these guys 
uh, well, I I have them both in the top ten. I don't know about you, but I, I oh yeah, yeah, no, that. I definitely I definitely have them within the within the top ten. I think the lack. I mean, if they're going to move up in the conversation for me, it's 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 longevity is a big part of it. Team success is a big part of it, just as much yeah. as individual numbers are a big part of it. And as you said, they haven't had the team success yet. Hopefully, they will. I think we've got a lot of reasons to be optimistic that that's just around the corner, potentially just in the next couple months. Um, but, uh, I mean, they're not, they're not, I don't think I'd, they're certainly not in, in the class yet of, well, of Gretzky, Curry, or Coffee. I would probably even is Is Dreisaitl ahead of, okay, I was just going to ask you that. I was going to say, is Dreisaitl ahead of someone like Glenn Anderson? I would probably have Anderson as your number. We're just talking, uh, are we talking well, just I mean, skaters? We're not including goalies? If we if we are including goalies, I guess we can do that too. But okay, for the sake of this, we'll just say the the top ten skaters in in Oilers history. Then I yeah, I would probably have Anderson four, and then I think uh, depending on the 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 day that you talk to me, I would rank uh, I would rank the I could easily rank the other two number five or six. I don't think there's anyone else I would have. No, there isn't anyone more I would have in front of them. Clear cut, and that that includes Coffee. Coffee's right yeah. in that mix, but uh, Coffee. And, and you pointed out, he was only there for seven seasons, as, as an incredible seven seasons as they were. And he did win uh, two, or is it three? I should know this. Who? Oh, uh, three coffee, cups, right? Coffee won three, won cups. three cups, yes. Three cups. So, I mean, they, he's he's got that. So, you know what? I'd have to put coffee ahead of him, too, actually. I'm just talking yeah. myself into it. So, you've got those five. And then I think after that, you could make a case for uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl being right there at six and seven. I, I'm curious though now, where where okay. do you have uh, well, them? Well, I, I look at it like this. I'll start with McDavid. Someone like Yari Curry had a 70 goal season with Edmonton. He also had a 68 goal season and he hit 50 goals four consecutive times. He topped out at 135 points, which is incredible very few players in nhl history have hit 135 points in a season but i think mcdavid has the potential to still surpass that and considering it's in an even more difficult era to score and the records that mcdavid has uh reached and the awards that he's won i think that he's closing in on yari curry territory of being right there um, Gretzky for me is untouchable. He captained the team to four Stanley cups. He scored 200 points four times out of five years. You look at a guy like Mark Messier and a guy like Yari Curry. I think that McDavid has the potential to vault past them. If he wins a Stanley cup in Edmonton, or I should say when he wins, cause I truly believe he is going to bring the Stanley cup back to Edmonton. Um, and like you said, we we talked about uh, this on the podcast last July when we were discussing the Chicago Bulls documentary, The Last Dance. And I remember in that doc, Michael Jordan saying that after he won his first NBA championship in 1991, that he could finally be mentioned in the same category as Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Now, I'm not saying uh, McDavid and Jordan are clone copies of each other, but we all know McDavid wants to win a cup more than any individual trophy. So I think that when he does get that cup, even though someone like Messier has five and Gretzky has four, we can really start having that conversation about McDavid being in contention with Messier for the the second for second all time in terms of Oilers greats, because I think that his numbers will even be better than Messier's. Um, 
Yeah, it's uh, that. So, so you have so you have him ahead of Anderson right now, then. McDavid, yes. Yeah, you do. McDavid, and, okay, for so sure. He's, he's and number, I think you got I, him number four right now. Honestly, I'm I'm tossing it up whether or not back and forth it, whether or not he's even ahead of Coffee. You know, Coffee oh, had okay. so you've got Coffee, coffee ahead of Anderson. Yes, yes. Okay, as, gotcha. as far as I'm concerned, like, don't get me wrong. Glenn Anderson is the Oilers' all-time leader in power play goals, game-winning goals. You know, he scored a – he's the all-time leader in overtime playoff goals. This is, a, you know, a, one of the greatest to ever put on the, the jersey. But McDavid, with coming up on his third scoring title already, and I know Anderson didn't have a chance to win that because he played when Gretzky played, and McDavid doesn't have to go up against Gretzky for it. But still – um, I would have Connor ahead of Anderson and I might even put him ahead of Paul Coffey at this point because they have been in the league almost the same amount of times. Um, you know, Coffey does have the three championships to McDavid's none so far, unless he gets one this season, but just that's the kind of category I have, uh, Connor. In. And then when it comes to dry he's for me, like, pretty close to top five status as well. He's, he's got an MVP. He's got a, an art Ross trophy. You know, these are things that a lot of the other guys on the Oilers didn't have. Now they, like we said, they did have the championship success, but he's, as far as I'm concerned, closing in on top five category as well. It's really a fascinating conversation. I don't think there's a wrong answer. It it all really depends on what, um, you know, because there's so many criteria and, and how you weigh it, whether it's, you know, how many Stanley Cups do you have? How many Art Ross or how many scoring titles do you have? Or how long were you with the team or how many 50 goal or 40 goal seasons? Yeah, there's so many different things. And, and we can all look at it and, and put different values on different things and come up with different <laughs> answers. I think the one thing we all agree on is, is, is number one is untouchable. I, I know. Oh, for sure. Or That's, number 99. Number 99 although, was positioned yeah. as number one is untouchable. I mean, the podcast is named after him, right? But I, I do feel like Connor could pass Gretzky's franchise scoring feats if he spends his entire career in Edmonton. If, oh, if, wow. If, that's, if, that's a if, great... Uh, if Connor spends 20 years... Prediction. Yeah, I mean, look, Gretzky top, finished with 1,669 points with the Oilers. I think right. that Connor will score more than 1,700 points. I think he'll get more than 1,800 in his career. So if he's an Oiler... From start to finish, he's going to be the Oilers' all-time leading scorer when he's done. It's just a matter of if if he's a career Oiler, and I, I really hope and truly believe he will be. Um, I know we have to wrap up here, so just before we finish, and also I should say, we may have to revisit this question five years from now, Brian, and and see oh, how, where, can't wait. where these guys are. I can't wait either. Like I said, it's always great doing episodes with you. Um, you have started writing for the Hockey Writers since the last time I had you on. Do you have anything coming up that people should be looking out for? Uh, yeah, well, actually, I'm, I'm working on, uh, uh, have a few articles coming out uh, every week and uh, some things I'm working on right now. Actually, my, my most recent one, this will be fun, uh, talking to some old school Oilers. I uh, ranked the, the top Russian defenseman. This was kind of as a tribute to oh. Dmitry Kulikov, our newest addition, uh, Russian blue liner. Uh, ranking the top Russian defenseman in Oilers history. So, uh, you know what, I'll ask you, I'll put you on the spot here. Who's your number one? Oh, I don't think it's Anton Belov. Um, <laughs> no disrespect uh, to Mr. Belov, but no, yes. Would it be Boris Miranov? That—that's who I got. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
I, I figured that a lot of people would probably have him. And I shouldn't be surprised. He's also attached to those late 90s Oilers teams as well. So, um, Scored the game winner in game one, 98 against the Avs. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah, big part of that history. Big part of that history. Awesome. Okay, Brian, where can people follow you before we call it a night? Ah, of course, they can follow me on Twitter at Brian Swain. So, uh, yeah, all sorts of uh, all sorts of wacky stuff. I, I tweet uh, hockey, basketball, other things. So your uh, yeah. your your Canadian NBA stats are one of my favorite things that you tweet out. The way that you are able to dig up all these numbers is is just fantastic. Well, you uh, you you do the same thing with uh, some of the the Oilers stats you come up with, and you've actually absolutely uh, thrown me off on two of them that I had no idea about tonight. So uh, you've you've done it again. So uh, yeah, no, always always great uh, chatting with you. I know we both of us could probably do this all night long, uh, just go back and forth, sharing memories and 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 ranking this well, and that. So uh, I appreciate you having me on as always. For sure, you were my first ever guest on the podcast, and now you're you've got the most times on the show at number or at making your fourth appearance tonight. So always a uh, great chatting with you, my friend, have a good one. You too. Take care. So for Brian Swain, I'm Eric Friesen. This has been the 99 forever podcast. We're out. Oh,